the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Richardson, CD, Commanding Officer, 3rd Canadian Ranger Patrol Group. Well, I suppose, Mike, when I think back to what I'm most proud of is joining the regiment as a private 17-year-old kid and becoming a commanding officer. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. A few episodes ago, I mentioned I want to break into different aspects of the Canadian forces. One of those aspects is the Canadian Rangers. They're a subcomponent of the Canadian Armed Forces Reserve, and they provide patrols and detachments for national security and public safety missions in the north, and also in isolated areas of Canada. The Rangers are organized into five Canadian Ranger patrol groups, and they cover distinct geographical areas. The Canadian Rangers are easily identified by their very distinctive red hoodies, their red ball caps, their combat pants, and their traditional Lee Enfield rifle. One of the roles that they provide is escorting soldiers from one of our many divisions into the Arctic and providing them with the skills and the subject matter expertise to survive and operate in the Arctic and in cold climates. Today's guest is the commanding officer of the 3rd Ranger Patrol Group, Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Richardson, served with the Lincoln and Welland Regiment, and he's also had a career with Niagara Regional Police. He's had the opportunity to deploy on Operation Proteus and provide the Palestinian Authority Security Forces with training, advice, and support. He led the Lincoln and Welland Regiment through some of their toughest days, and now he leads the 3rd Canadian Ranger Patrol Group in isolated areas throughout Ontario, and his headquarters is out of Canadian Forces Base Borden. Here's my interview with Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Richardson. Lieutenant Colonel Richardson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. You and I first met on the Urban Assault Range at Canadian Forces Base Petawawa in the summer of 2006, and if I remember correctly, the Lincoln and Welland Regiment had just received some very bad news. Yes, that was a busy time. 2006 was a shocking summer for us. We were at summer camp. We had just received word that our commanding officer had passed away. He'd been ill for some time. It had been coming, but we didn't anticipate it. Well, the bulk of the regiment was in Petawawa, and he was down in St. Catharines. I seem to remember that everyone from the Lincoln and Welland Regiment had to wash up, board some buses, head home, gather their ceremonial uniforms, go to the services, and then come right back to the field as though nothing had happened. It was quite a turnaround. Yes. In theory, I was the company commander up at summer camp, but reality was I was the deputy commanding officer. What that did was it it required me to take over. The exercise, though, was ongoing. It was an area-wide exercise. In the matrix, it would have caused a fairly large hole had we just jumped ship and headed back. So really what we actually had a day or so of battle procedure, jumped on our friends with helicopters and did a raid on the urban assault range, did the after-action review, and then the cleanup began. Soldiers being soldiers, we had a job to do, so we'd take a pause on the exercise, but we had to get back at it. Yes, it was quite a turnaround. Buses down, back to St. Catharines, organize a funeral, and then return. It was a good bunch of teamwork from the area staff right on down to the guys who were still behind who didn't come up on the exercise. Right. A lot of work in the background, like there always is in the Army. Now, on a funnier note, when you and I first met, I had the opportunity to make some tactical adjustments to our good friend Bruce Mayer's helmet (laughs) so that he had a surprise waiting for him when he went to put his gear back on. 
he knew it was me, even though he didn't see me do it or didn't see me anywhere near his kit. But <laughs> I don't think you had to even tell him that I was the prankster involved in that. Oh, no. Oh, Bruce, he's a funny man. He was my 2IC for that. That's right. Company 2IC. But he's also as good as giving out to, as he is receiving them. So I'm sure it all went on well. Exactly. So I sent you the questions in advance, sir. Are you ready? Sure, I am. Excellent. Why don't you tell me why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, joining the military was sort of a foregone conclusion for me. From my earliest recollections, I was wanted to be a soldier. My dad was in the Lincoln and Welland. All of his brothers were in the Lincoln and Welland, one of who died during World War II. But the rest, they all cycled through the regiment. So as soon as I was old enough, I joined the Lincoln and Welland and was happy being a Link. Now, the plan was to join the regular force once I got out of high school. But as luck would have it, that just didn't quite happen, and I ended up on the police force. So remained in Lincoln Welland and on from there ever since. And which police force was that? I was a member of the Niagara Regional Police. As I say, I joined shortly out of high school. They had a cadet program at the time. Right. So I was 18 when I started there. I ended up there basically because there there was no summer jobs with the reserves that year, and uh, I needed a summer job. I had applied to the regular force and was awaiting officer selection boards the following spring, but that was virtually a year ahead, so I had to find some means of income. Right. It worked out very well for me because I was, I, I was able to retire this past summer, and then I had an offer that was too good to refuse moving over to the Canadian Ranger program here in Camp Borden. Right. So the early start in my career as a police officer gave me a chance to do that for 30 years and then move on to what I really wanted to do, be in the, in the military. <laughs> You're not the only member of Niagara Regional Police to belong to the Lincoln and Welland. You have quite a few members, different aspects as well, not only on the police side, but on the court security side. Oh, yes. I was working a few years ago. I was working on the military leave plan for the Niagara Regional Police. And uh, when I was counting at the time, there was 27 of the about 900 members of the Niagara Regional Police Service were currently serving. And then there was a whole host of others who, who of course, had passed former military service. Right. We had York Regional Police, Peel Regional Police. We've had people working near and far, and not, not just on the police, but people seem to, once they're in a regiment, like the Lincoln or Welland or, or somewhere else, they have a, an affinity to that regiment. They want to continue with that, and they're willing to travel to do so. It's an interesting uh, situation for the reserves. The unit is the tie. Right. The tie in, into the military. So not that this is a police podcast, but what was the world like when you joined? <laughs> well, it was 1982. It was Cold War. was That was still the main focus. The training where it was now, it's, it's training is very dispersed operations and smaller groups. We were planning for the trip over to Germany and moving into defensive positions for the Soviet onslaught. And so instead of reconnaissance courses, there was communications courses and armor defense courses. And it was interesting in, in a lot of ways. Of course, also at Fall of 82, I had just finished my recruit course, and we got a bug-out exercise, and I thought it was we're getting called up for the Falklands. <laughs> <laughs> so that was around that same time period. What were you like when you joined? Oh, I was like any 17-year-old private, and I was, <laughs> <laughs> thought I was everything, and re- re- looking back, realized how stupid I was at the time. It, uh, <laughs> the military is certainly a place you to learn and grow and, and develop. You, know, it's, uh, you look at across the parade square now, and you see yourself 30-odd years ago, the, the troops are still the troops. Nothing, nothing changes too much. <laughs> They're a lovable bunch. So now you said you joined as a private. What led you to become an officer? I joined as a private, and I ended up getting a driver's course fairly early. People need drivers, and it was, so I ended up doing a fair bit of work with the fall recruit course. And I thought, oh, this instructing thing looks like a pretty good gig. Cool bunch of guys to hang out with. 
So I got on my NCO course as, as quick as I could and was able to be a swing instructor as a corporal and then as a master corporal. And you kind of, I don't know, you get noticed, I guess. People recommend different things. I think I ticked off the RSM when I commissioned, but it, it, <laughs> actually I know I did because he told me after. That was Roy Dwyer who we opened this segment who ended up, after being RSM, becoming commanding officer, and I was his deputy commander. But yeah, he had hoped I would stay on the NCO line, and the commanding officer thought I should become a commissioned officer, and at the time, it seemed like the thing to do. Right. Sir, what is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces, or your greatest achievement? My greatest achievement? Well, I suppose, Mike, when I think back to what I am most proud of is joining the regiment as a private 17-year-old kid and becoming the commanding officer. I said earlier, soldiers developed an affinity to their regiment. The Lincoln one was mine. It was home for me for 40 years, as my dad was in before I joined, and I was hanging around at armories for a lot of my youth, and then to join and become a member and then be chosen to be the, the head member. That's it, probably my proudest thing in the military. Are there any memorable experiences that jump out at you, sir? Oh, yeah, there's lots of memories. I grew up there. If I think of the 30 years of memory, you mentioned earlier how I ended up taking command with the passing of Roy Dwyer. Although it's part-time, it's your daily life for 30-odd years. There's tons of happy ones and tons of sad ones as you go through. I didn't actually get married at the armories, but I was married in my uniform. My wife's from Wales, and we two friends uh, uh, from the regiment and I went over and went in there. The commanding officer at the time phoned and pointed out that he hadn't given permission for us to marry, and, and it was null and void, but uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was just an interesting, sweet thing to do. You become a member of a family when you join the military, and that family, you have the highs and lows. I say family, and I truly mean that. I think in terms of the regiment of any military unit, it's a family-type situation. You have the mom, the dad, the, the people who take care of your brothers and sisters who take care of you when you mess up. So a memorable experience, that I, I have many, sending soldiers overseas, having them come back over 20 years, over a lot of different conflicts and world situations. From there to some of the interesting training that I've had the opportunity to take part in, I've had the opportunity to plan and to, and to go on. There's wonderful, wonderful memories. For people, I think there's a lot of opportunities in the military that they have that they can take advantage of. I think of some of the places I've traveled to. I've been to Europe, I've been to Norway, I've been to Moldova, Palestine, and Israel. There's travel opportunities that all bring back great memories, but to actually narrow it down, it's just a, a lifetime with your family. Right. You bring up one of the interesting traditions, and perhaps you can tell me if it's still practiced, but you said you had to ask the commanding officer for permission to be married, and that goes back to the times when officers were essentially housed within the regimental lines. And when you were asking your CO for permission to marry, you're not only asking for permission to marry, but you're asking to start your family within the unit lines. That tradition, I don't know if it's still carried on. I've heard about it, but as a commanding officer, you should know if that tradition is still alive or not. <laughs> no, I, I don't think that's still Canadian Forces policy. I think that people do it as a humorous anecdote or something. I, I did have a lieutenant ask me for permission to get married when I was commanding officer, but he certainly didn't need my permission. It was no. it was different times. I did have a, it's not a, it's a military podcast and not a police one, but I had a police sergeant one time who, when I was a young constable, and uh, he had been in the military, and I asked him, why'd you leave the military and why'd you come to the police force? And he said, well, I, I needed to get married. And, and the, uh, the commanding officer said, no. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, couldn't you have waited? And, you know, I needed to get married. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. 
so that I've never heard of anyone being declined in modern times, but that's no. that's interesting. Well, you know, this would have been uh, probably 40 years ago now, because right. he had been on the Niagara Region Police Force for 20 years at that point, so and it was some time ago. I think it's an interesting tradition, even if it is not strictly CF policy and whether it's not still practiced where the CO actually has any authority to say no. But I think it's still a good noble practice for a young lieutenant or captain to have to go and wring his hands and have that conversation <laughs> with the commanding. I think I think it's a great tradition. I hope it stays alive and I hope COs still enjoy going through that process. I mean, it's almost like having to ask the father or the bride. The father-in-law, yes. Yeah, it's, an old, it's an old tradition. What I think is maybe a good part of it or a good outcome not as formal as that is actually bringing the future husband or bride to the unit to meet the mess members it sort of introduces her to the the regimental family you know, really it's, it's a part of the family that she's joining right he or she and i think it's important to get that buy-in from the your other family and they they understand when you're you're going away when you need to you're not there for periods of time and, and you miss birthdays and Mother's Day and all of the other bits and pieces for training or exercises or operations. It also creates that sort of family support network that's so very important in the military world and maybe even a little bit more so. It needs a little more effort, I think, in the reserve where it's not your daytime job, it's not your full-time job but you're still going to be away and you don't have the spouses of your comrades aren't as close as maybe in, in the regular force world. Right. So moving on, sir, who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? And before you answer that question, I want you to know that Bruce Mayer listed you as one of his greatest influences. <laughs> well, that's awful nice of Bruce. I have to kind of wonder why he, uh, what, what the memory was that actually uh, brought it up. But that was very nice of him. I kind of have three big influences that sort of affected my career, my leadership within the military. Of course, I, I mentioned my father already. He was, of course, he would have influenced me in, into join and, and develop that desire. You want to be like your dad. But in the military, I was very lucky to work with and for some great, great leaders. Sort of my first role model, I, I think, was Tim Carter. He was the platoon commander on my recruit course, and I had he was one of the ones I had the opportunity to work for as a driver on the subsequent recruit courses, and encouraged me to take my commission. He's a forward-looking optimist, aims high. He's the idea guy. He works in chaos and achieves results. The saying, he's the poster boy for the saying, don't think outside the box. You have to realize there's no box there in the first place. <laughs> of course, he needs a, a platoon of captains and staff officers behind him to, to shape things, but he's of inspiration. I think he was one of the biggest ones. Next is Bob Wright. He was the course sergeant major on that same recruit course working for Tim, and he was a great foil for Tim. He's that experienced, straightforward, inspiring leader. He always knew where he stood with him, especially if he had a drill cane in his hand that was pointed at you. <laughs> But he's also dynamic and always had positive reinforcement. He made you want to work for him. And then third is Damon McMiniman. He was my first section commander. And he was an influence, even though he, shortly after I joined, he went to the regular forest. But he was the guy who always took the time. If he was tying a, a rope for a, a line of some sort or making a hoochie, he'd take the time to sit and, and talk to you about knots and show you the knots and then undo it and give it to you and say, mm -hmm. okay, now you tie the knot. Right. Always passing on his experience. He also had a couple of nicknames that involved punching or punchy or duke or something. So 
realized he didn't suffer fools very well. If you were wanting to learn, he made sure you did. Of the other two, he had that quiet and unassuming demeanor and that inspired the confidence in everything he did. He comes, he leads, he makes things happen, and then he leaves. There was just sort of no fuss with Damien. Well, it's interesting how many people have brought up their first Sakshig commander or their first mentor on their very first leadership course that forms part of their influence. And I think once you do get that first solid leader that sets the tone for your whole military career, once you have that opportunity to be developed by that first effective leader, it really sets the tone for everything that you do beyond that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge thing. You know, at first, um, it shapes the character, that first little segment of your career. And we get people usually very young, very impressionable. And having that good experience right from the get-go is hugely important. You can really make the person then sets the tone for the next 30 years. Now, I know the Lincoln and Welland has many memorable characters, but is there one memorable character that comes to mind? Well, well there we are talking about the first, your first time. My first day uh, at the Lincoln, I wasn't even in. I was just looking to join and was going to go speak to the recruiter. Two of my buddies and I went up to St. Catharines and we walked into Lake Street Armory. And as we're walking by, we see a, a master corporal, Todd Scottney, standing by the water fountain. And there's a some sort of open doorway that went down some stairs. He saw us walking in, looking around, trying to figure things out, and realized we were fairly new, and engaged us. Here. So you you think you join us, great, you're going to love this place, and it's all, all good. And, oh, shit, come with me. And he grabs the hold of the, the two of us by the shoulder, and the third one followed, dragged us down the stairs. Well, we wondered where we were going. <laughs> Why he's, 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 as we walked by, he says, oh, the RSM was coming. We had to get out of the way there. <laughs> so that was my very first Lincoln Island soldier that I ran into, and he's certainly a character. He's, uh, he's been up to warrant, but he's back down to sergeant. Um, <laughs> I think he may have done that a couple of times. Uh, a, a great man, and he's been influential on so many soldiers over the last 30 years. It's staggering. He's a good soldier, a very honorable man. He had a few blunders, I guess, along the way. Great. Sir, what is the greatest challenge you've had to overcome? My biggest challenge as commanding officer, when one of my soldiers, Warrant Officer Dennis Brown, passed away. He was overseas in Afghanistan and was killed in an IED strike. So that starts a train of events that is a challenge on a great number of levels. The emotions, emotional side, the logistical side. And, and there's, there's significant leadership challenges there, too. It becomes a cross between making people happy and doing things right. It's in a highly charged emotional setting. As it, we started this thing off with a, a funeral story. One of the uh, ladies in the officer's mess, her husband had been a commanding officer before I joined even. But after Roy's funeral, she said, what a wonderful job you did planning this funeral. You'll become known for it. And then, then she said, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I think I may have jinxed you. Well, yeah. hmm. <laughs> I think she did. It, uh, it's part of death is, as much as anything is a part of life, and it's going to happen. So doing right by our comrades is the driving factor there, I think. Right. In, in a lot of ways, it was a unifying event. Horrible as it was, it made us stronger for having gone through it. It brought out members of the regimental family that had been away for a long time and brought them back into the fold. And I'm not saying that it's a positive thing, but there are positive results that happened after the, the event. We will continue to remember our, our brother who, who isn't with us anymore, but it's the carrying on of the unit that actually gives strength and shows that no matter what happens, we will, we will be there. Right. Absolutely, sir. Well, sir, we've come to the end of the four questions. Is there anything you're working on right now, sir, that might be of interest to people? 
That's right. So I sort of, after I, I left the regiment, I went on to brigade headquarters, and then I alluded to an opportunity that was too good for me to refuse. I'm now the commanding officer of three Canadian Ranger Patrol Group in Borden. And I've got to say, if any of your listeners are in the reserve and they had an opportunity to do a call out with the Rangers, I think they'd have a wonderful experience. It's an amazing organization dealing with some wonderful, wonderful people who do operations in the north on a daily basis. Ground search and rescue, forest fire monitoring, flood watch, they're operational all the time. And it's just part of their daily lives, and the Canadian Forces gives them an, an opportunity to actually give back to their community on a larger scale. And we have a lot of opportunities for reserve soldiers to take part in. So keep your eye on the CFTPO. <laughs> How far does the area that you cover in the 3rd Ranger Patrol Group? 3 TRPG covers all of Ontario. The ranges in, in Canada are, are in the remote areas of the country, so in Ontario, it's, it's northern Ontario. This spring, winter, January, February, we, uh, we did a, a coastal patrol from the Manitoba border along Hutchins Bay down to James Bay, ending in Cochrane, Ontario. It's an 1,100-kilometer one-way patrol. It's a big area up there, <laughs> I'm finding mm-hmm. out. That's definitely memorable. Hopefully you got to throw in a line or two on the way by. <laughs> Get some fishing in it. <laughs> we, 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 yeah, up, up, when we were up uh, by Manitoba, on Niscobee Lake, we, we did a little bit of ice fishing. What amazed me was we had a hole in the ice and a, a line going in, but the water would be freezing quick, quicker than you could jig your line. And <laughs> the one ranger pulled his net off and reached in and scooped out the water with his hand. And <laughs> I thought, wow, that's amazing. So I thought I'd try it. <laughs> and, of course, it might my weak little hands had quite a shock. He says, well, the secret is make sure they're dry before you put them in back in your glove. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, sir, thank you for taking the time to be a guest on the show. I know I always appreciate seeing you at the many events, including the patching over ceremony from LFCA to the 4th Canadian Division that we were at yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. No. Well, thank you, Mike. I, I, it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks again. Take care. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.